I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians 1. We're continuing our study in the, the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, I think it's providential that the passage we are considering this morning is really highlighting the, the power and reign of Jesus Christ. In a time of uncertainty within our world, and the wonder and anxiety that, it com- that comes wondering what world leaders will do to be reminded that Christ is king. And to see how this passage and really this chapter culminates with this realization. And we began looking at this passage last week, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, from verses uh, 15 and following, 15 through verse 23, is one sentence. And so we looked at part of the sentence last week, uh, one sentence in the Greek text. It's more than one in our English text. It's broken up so that we can understand the flow. But I want us to conclude this, this this morning and seeing the power of the Lord. You know, one of the aspects of construction projects that I have always found fascinating is, is watching the power of a bulldozer. Watching it clear the soil and then being in areas where there are tree lots filled with trees and to see how these bulldozers can just push that out of the way. Removing stumps and pr- pushing them into a large power. So, so when I saw an article last week that was, publi- it was published last week on the five biggest bulldozers in the world, I was interested. And the picture they've put up there is, is the one that is said to be the largest, most powerful tracked bulldozer in the world. It's the Eco Superdozer. It was built in North Italy in the early 1980s. It was constructed primarily of, of parts that were made by Caterpillar. The, the blade, or the, the bulldozer is 40 feet long and weighs 183 tons. It has two engines with a combined output of 1,350 horsepower. The blade on this bulldozer is 23 feet wide. That's about from that speaker to that speaker. And nine feet tall, which is probably just from the floor to about up to here. That's the size of it. And you can see the, the, the perspective with the car and with this individual there. This, this bulldozer was built to be exported to Libya to help with land development. But in the 1980s, the, the leader of Libya was Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. And because of his involvement with international terrorism, there were trade restrictions placed upon the country. And because of that embargo, this bulldozer was never shipped. In fact, this bulldozer was never used for any operational purpose. It was built and ended up in storage where it was built. About 10 years ago, it was started up, moved onto a trailer, and taken to a new location where it could be preserved and displayed. I I found it astonishing that the largest, most powerful bulldozer ever built was never utilized. And, And while it might make an interesting tourist attraction in some town where it's stored, that was not the purpose for which it was developed. The purpose for which it was developed was never used, and therefore it was really wasted. 
But you know, I wonder how many Christians fail to utilize an even greater power that is available to them. In Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 1, he he really is tripping over himself to describe the power of God that is available to those who know him. And if we truly recognize that, are we availing ourselves of it? What I want us to do this morning is conclude the theme that we considered last week, that those who rejoice in God's powerful work of salvation should pray for spiritual growth in others and live under Christ's exalted authority and in his power. And that's really what we see in this sentence. This prayer in verses 15 through 23 flows out of the statement that believers are selected by the Father, they're saved by the Son, and they're secured by the Holy Spirit. That was the sentence before this sentence in the Greek text. That sentence went from verse 3 to verse 14. And so we've got two extremely long sentences, one speaking of praising God, and the result of that then is prayer. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. Ephesians 1, 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe." according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body." the fullness of him who fills all in all. The purpose of this prayer, it's really a purposeful prayer based on what has come that ought to result in practical life and practical faith in our lives. Now, we considered this last week, and I've given you the first part of the outline in your bulletin without blanks, so you don't have to fill that in, but I I want us to understand the flow of what is taking place. The first part was to pray for, for spiritual growth. And the two characteristics that were brought out in in this prayer is that your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints. And so we saw that true believers display a genuine faith and manifest a comprehensive love, a love for all believers, not just some believers. And that there's a growing faith and a growing love. The second aspect that we considered was the prayer request there be an increase in our individual, our our spiritual vision. That we will develop a spirit of wisdom and understanding being enlightened. That we'll, we'll have that knowledge and that revelation. So what we saw was that believers will develop a spirit of wisdom. Believers will develop discerning insight And thirdly, believers will develop a deepening comprehension of his hope, wisdom, and power. 
that, that there would be the opening of our eyes. You know, you can't show a person what they're unwilling to see. And for a natural person, an unsaved person, the Bible tells us they don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Now, now that's not some fatalistic approach that would discourage us because God has the power to make blind eyes see. And it's the Word of God that turns on that light. So we give the Word. But what we do see is that believers then will develop in a deepening comprehension and the words that we have there are set off in verses 18 and 19 by the, the what. There's three what's stated in the text. What is the hope? What are the riches of his inheritance? And what is his power? And so you see how this passage is developing, and I, and I draw your attention to that, so as you read the Bible, you'll be looking for these ty- types of things. And then the, the prayer shifts to focus on God's power. The prayer recognizes the power of God, and that's what we see in verses 19 and 20. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And in, in that verse, verse 19, we have the power of God described. In fact, in this verse, in that description, I've mentioned Paul is almost tripping over himself. The Holy Spirit is just giving one word after another to explain God's power. There's actually six different words that are used in that, in that statement, Greek words, that speak of the exceeding greatness of his power, the extraordinary, extreme capacity of a dynamic power that is directed to those of us who believe. And we took time and walked through those words last week. I'm not going to do that again, but I want that on our, our, in our thinking as we look at it. And then he continues by saying he's, he's working of his mighty power. That is the energizing operational power to control and strengthen. That, that he has the horsepower to move whatever needs to be moved. That God's power moved heaven to earth for our salvation. And to recognize that his power enables us to use the wealth of that power that's available to us. That it's not to sit in a heavenly storage unit, but it's that available to us to give us power to endure and to serve. He gives you power to defeat sin in your life. And I mentioned last week, and I think it's good for us to ponder, do we really want victory over sin? Or do we just want sin partially defeated? We want it subdued but not slain. You know, we'd prefer it be docile, not dead. Because sometimes we want to enjoy a little pleasure in sin. We just don't want it to control us. We have to be willing to let God's power kill and clear away the rubble of sin in our lives. Say, okay, that sounds good. But... How do I know that this isn't just a a fascinating attraction sitting in heaven in a storage facility? Where do we actually see this power displayed? And that's what verse 20 tells us. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. We have two statements here of the display of this power. The first one is the resurrection. It says, when he worked, that's God the Father, worked in Christ when he, God the Father, raised him, God the Son, 
from the dead. You know, we're hearing in the news the threats and displays of power that ends life. Bombs that kill and could kill multitudes of people. God has the power to give life, to raise the dead. And the great display of that power and deity is in destroying death by raising Christ from the grave. The grace then that saves us. You know, it it took more grace for Christ to, to stay on the cross and die and rise from the dead than it would have to come off the cross to preserve life. To destroy death by the resurrection is a greater power than, as he was said, if you be the Christ, come off the cross. Christ ministered for 40 days after the resurrection. Acts 1 tells us this. And and the disciples in in that passage, as he's with his disciples, they want to talk about eschatology. They said, let's talk about the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus said, no, I want to point you to evangelism. You shall receive power. And be witnesses to me. And then he ascends into heaven. And it's important that we don't minimize the ascension. Because that really is, it's leading from the tomb to the exaltation. The ascension is God's reply to the jeers when Christ was on the cross. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Prove it to us. The proof is in the ascension and the authority now described in the exaltation. And so in Acts chapter 2, in verse 32, as Peter is preaching, he says, this Jesus God raised up, of which we all are witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see and hear. So Peter is saying the outpouring of the power at Pentecost was a result of the exaltation. That the the Holy Spirit is poured out because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And it marked the birthday of the church. It, It ties in with verses 22 and 23, and all of this comes together. The exaltation completes the resurrection, the body of Christ, that the body that Christ took at Bethlehem, that was nailed to the cross rose from the tomb and is now ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God. And so that's what we see in the second aspect, the display, the exaltation. So in Philippians 2, it says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. The book of Hebrews opens and said, God spoke to us by his Son, who is the, being the brightness of his glory and expresses the image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had purged, himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And, and in this, this picture of Christ being seated in heaven, there's a couple of aspects. As our high priest, it's a statement that he has finished the sacrificial work. In the Old Testament, the priest didn't sit down. Their their work didn't end. They had to continue making sacrifices. But Christ is seated because it is finished. 
And so the atoning work is done. It's complete. He is seated. But there's another aspect. He is seated not simply to rest, but to reign. And so as judge, he, he is now seated to preside. If you go to court, usually as you're seated there, the bailiff will say, all rise as the judge enters the chambers. And the judge comes in and sits at the bench, and then you may be seated. He's not sitting there to rest. He's sitting there to rule. Christ is sitting to rule. He is reigning. So his court is in session. And so then what we see is that the prayer rejoices in the exalted authority of Jesus Christ. And that's the fourth thing I want us to consider this morning and see that, that first of all, his rule is glorious. He's far above any principality, power, might, dominion, every name that is named, and not only in this age, but the age to come. We, and so we see this. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote the words, Rejoice the Lord is King. And, and with the call to lift up your heart, what encourages our heart? Knowing that whoever is the president of Russia is not the ultimate authority. That our president is not the ultimate authority. That Supreme Court justices are not the ultimate judges. Christ reigns. Lift up your heart. Why? Because Jesus, the Savior, reigns. The God of truth and love. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. And it says he is seated in heavenly places. This is a reoccurring theme that we find in Ephesians. It began back in verse 3. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, why is that where the blessings are? Because that's where Christ is seated. The personal benefit of his glorious rule is then seen in, in this. And what we consider, in fact, if you want to just look either across the page or over a page to chapter 2, the, the passage that we read a few moments ago that Mr. High read for us, it's really parallel language. When you look at verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see the parallel here. The power that is displayed in raising Christ and his exaltation is available to us as believers. That it's that power that made us alive. And that we can enjoy those blessings. And it says he's far above any power currently on earth or in the heavens or what will come. So we see not only is his rule glorious, his supremacy is absolute. And I think there's an illusion in this passage going back to, to Psalm 110, verse 1. And it's a passage that, that is quoted in the New Testament and, and Jesus quotes, but it says in Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, who are Christ's enemies? Well, Psalm 2 
lays some of that out. Why do the nations rage? The people plot vain things. The kings and the earl, rulers of the earth take counsel to cast off God's restraint. We see that happening all around us. God's restraints as to what is appropriate for marriage and sexuality. God's ideas of, of family. And then the, the powers of the word and world, and they try to cast that off. And how does God respond? Psalm 2 tells us he laughs. He has so much power, he can just push those stumps right out of the way. And, and it's not going to deter him. But those are some of the enemies. Satan, who attacks and tempts. But we also need to understand that in the New Testament, we're told that friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. That we have to be on guard. We have to be careful. And, and now in this passage, Paul is using terms that, that cover every conceivable power, angelic, demonic, or human. Any powers that are present or that might come later, Christ is far above them all. So verse 21, above every principality, power, might, dominion, name that's named, all of these in, in this age, not only this age, but the age to come. Like, okay, let's get everything here and understand that. Now, I, I, I want to remind us, remember that Ephesus was a city that was known for its idolatry and magic. I mean, the, the temple to Diana and the idolatry that went with that and the, the paganism of that worship. And, and to realize that, well, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, now the idols actually are nothing. But the power behind the idols is demonic. So do you think there might have been any believers in Ephesus that might have been concerned about all those demonic powers in that city? Understand, God always speaks specifically to human need. Do you know where the most focused description of spiritual warfare is in the entire Bible? It's in this letter. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It is the most comprehensive aspect of spiritual warfare. The passage comes in this context. So what we see at the end of chapter 1 is the context for what we'll read in, in some coming weeks in chapter 6. It comes on the understanding of all power, might, dominion. Every authority that's out there is under his feet. That ought to give us comfort. That ought to, that ought to be a, a, an encouragement to our souls. The demons are defeated. They haven't surrendered. But the biblical teaching is that evil spirits are radically subordinate to Christ's authority. And so the mode of spiritual warfare, according to Scripture in Ephesians 6, is that we're to really live in the fear of God, trust in and fight with the Word of God, Obey the promptings of the indwelling Holy Spirit and live in his power. Well, do you think his power is enough? Yes. He can raise the dead. He exalted Christ. And what we see in the weaponry that is given, the armor that is provided, is the focus is on the Lord, not the devil. Christ is far above all other powers. In fact, I find it interesting in Scripture that other than Satan, we don't know the names of any demons. When Jesus asked a demon-possessed person and the demons there, what was their name, what, what is your name, the response was for the group, legion. 
because we are many. They didn't give individual names. It was the group. So we don't find any demons named individually. We do find angels. But understand, every power, every name is below him. Jesus has a name that is above every name. President, king, emperor, czar, judge, whatever. It pales compared to the exalted one of God. The greatest power, the highest authority in this world or any world to come or in the spirit realm is below Christ's lowest point. They're under his feet. So the highest power is below his lowest point. They're under, they're his footstool. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies your footstool. The picture there is one of rule. If a while back we went through the book of, of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 10, there's a description of a coalition of five kings that, that come against Israel. And, and then when, when Israel is winning the battle, those kings hide out in a cave and Joshua says, put a stone over the door and we'll come back and deal with them later. And they do. And when they come back, Joshua says, bring them out. And then he calls for the captains of the soldiers of Israel. And here's what he says in Joshua 10, verse 24. He says, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And then he tells them this. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of a good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. It's an illustration of complete victory. They are a defeated foe. Folks, Satan is a defeated foe. His, any strength he has is under Christ's lowest part. All things are subject to him. He has absolute authority. So the question we have to ask is, does he have authority in our lives? Do we allow him to reign? Can we say, king of my life, I crown thee now? Or are there areas where we struggle with that? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure I really want that. Are there areas where we struggle to submit to his word? Oh, we wouldn't say that. We're not going to reject God's word. We're just going to, we're going to define it and argue it in a way that fits our mold rather than saying, Lord, what does your word say? And, and open mine ears that I may hear. Open my heart that we will respond. You know, there are many passages that are going to come and they're going to rub us wrong because of our sinful nature, our struggle with sin, and, and our own selfish desires. You want to know how spiritually mature you are? Examine your response when you don't get your way. Do we really believe God's in control? Do I, do I understand that He is... He is seeking to reign, and he's molding us, bringing pressure to bear to conform us to the image of his son. And that we have an amazing situation because we are part of his body as the church. And that's the third thing I want us to see, that his union with the church is complete. There's an interesting statement as we come to this, as it says he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him that fills all in all. The, the, that not only is he the Lord, <clears throat> we're part of his body. The end of this prayer and this chapter directs the focus to Christ's relationship with, with the church. 
as his body. And, and that's the main metaphor that will be used. It reminds us again that the church is not a club. That, that in a club, you choose who you associate with. In the church, God chooses. And we saw that back in the beginning of this chapter. But there's an organic, vital connection between the head and the body and within the body. That, that the body is not simply a bunch of loose parts somehow connected. I mean, that would be a monstrosity. That'd be like Frankenstein. <laughs> Oh, we'll take body parts over here and body parts over here and somehow sew them all together. No, it's a body that Christ has brought together. The church is an integrated whole. And we get our life from the Lord. So he's not only our Lord, he's our life. And Paul, as Saul, learned this lesson. He learned it very shockingly. I mean, talk about somebody who was against the church Paul was going around persecuting the church and he's on that road to Damascus and Jesus confronts him and you remember what the Lord said. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who did Saul think he was persecuting? The people in Damascus, in Jerusalem, individuals. But what he learned was when you attack the body, you're persecuting the head. You're going against the head. There is a connection that is living, that is vital. The body gets its life from the head and is to take its direction from the head. So as the head, Christ rules the church. He is the head that of, you know, in our culture, if somebody's the head of a company, they're in charge. Christ is the head of the church. So it's, it's not my church or our church, although it's not wrong to identify and, and be committed. That's, that's not wrong language, but it is important that we don't think that we're in charge. And, and unfortunately, we live in a day of consumerism because it is wrong to think that we can adapt or fashion the church according to our heart's desire or our personal whims. Our first question has to be, what honors Christ? What does he want? To mold and choose a church based on our own self-yearnings is selfish. We must worship him as he has directed to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And the worship must be regulated by the word of God. It must be fitting to the, the majesty, the majestic transcendence and the moral separateness of our Savior. It can't be tainted with the, the worldliness of our day and truly be honoring to Christ. And he's the head. He gets to decide. So how does the head rule the church? Well, we seek to proclaim the word of God. We seek to advance purity in our own personal lives and unity within our body. And so the question we all have to ask is, does Christ have, does God's word have active functional control in our life? And by active functional control, I mean that the Bible isn't just a passive resource. I, you know, I read it this morning, I can check it off on my Bible reading schedule, done, and now I'm on my own. Know that it goes with me through the day. It's my guide. And that I'm seeking to honor Christ in my personal decisions, in my attitude, in how I respond, and, and when I fail to confess our sins and to realize, you know, I'm still growing. And by functional control, are we emphasizing what the Bible emphasizes? Do we have a biblical philosophy of life and ministry? 
do we really seek to live under the word? Or do we just kind of slap verses on things to, to make it look spiritual? You know, th this takes more than just a slap a Bible verse on an opinion or a position. It requires a sustained submitting to the head of the church. And then there's this amazing statement at the end, which, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How, how can Jesus, who created all things and is the head, be filled by the church? And the metaphor that we see is really presenting actually a paradox. The, the metaphor of the, the head and the body brings that, that together because a head really isn't complete without a body. You know, you need a body if you've got a head, and you need a head if you've got a body. It doesn't function. And, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones said, a body needs a head, and you cannot think of a head without a body. But there are other metaphors in Scripture for the relationship of Christ and the church that help us see this as well. I mean, Christ is the bridegroom. Well, if he's a bridegroom, he needs a bride. He's the shepherd. A shepherd needs sheep. He's the vine. A vine needs branches. To really be complete, you, you know, a shepherd is not complete without sheep. A redeemer is not complete without something to be redeemed. And so there's, there's a picture here that the head without the body is not complete and the church complements Christ. And we're here then to do his work. So it's no wonder, as you think about this, and as we read this statement, and often we just kind of read over it, do you understand why Paul began by praying that God would open their eyes of understanding? Like, I, it, I'm still struggling to wrap my head around all of this. But that's why we pray, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to grasp what this means that I'll have understanding and that enlightenment because when we do, it will change our lives. So how can we apply this personally? Number one, Christ's exalted authority assures your salvation. One of the struggles that, that people often have, and, and I find with young people, and, and you know, I went through this, is that assurance of salvation. Especially if they made a decision at a young age and they never try to push a child into that or just say, oh yeah, you're saved because it was written in your Bible. You know, no, the Holy Spirit has to work in their heart. But there's questions, and I found as I learned more, it's like, well, did I, you know, how many sins do you have to forget, confess when you're a child? And, and did I really understand what repentance meant and, and what faith and trust, and, and those questions that come, and what I ultimately had to come to grips with was it's not based on what I knew or did. It's did I tr surrender to Christ? Am I trusting only in his work? And I find it interesting. Paul, well, Paul does talk about his salvation experience, his trusting Christ on the road to Damascus. What you find is he's, his trust is I know who I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. He said, I, I, I am today trusting in Christ. And really the question is, if you were to die today and God asked, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? Well, I think I've, I was a church member. I was baptized. I tried to do good works. None of that's going to cut it. It's the work of Christ alone. And the culmination of Christ's coming, the gift of God and giving his son in his birth and, and dying on the cross that we can have peace with God is, is brought to the ascension which gives us confidence that our 
salvation is sure when it's in Christ alone. So as it says in 1 Corinthians, oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? Be But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been raised to new life by the power of God? That's what chapter 2 is talking about. That's what we read earlier. That's the parallel we considered. Christ's exaltation assures your salvation. Christ paid the price. He sealed my pardon with his blood. He conquered death in the resurrection, and he seated, seated to reign. And there's no power above him. That all powers on earth are under his feet. So there's nothing that can be real, revealed in your life that isn't under his blood. And God uses us as unfinished tools of redemption to accomplish his purpose and that we can proclaim his glory. He has us here because there's a mission that we need to accomplish. And we have that anticipation, that hope, because of the resurrection that Christ has risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because as by one man sin entered the world and, and death came, so by one man comes resurrection. And so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so recognizing it's not what I do. Baptism works, you know, philosophy. It's what Christ has done alone and turning from sin and trusting in him. Has there been that time of new birth? But for those of us that are saved, understand it is never God's fault that you don't give victory over sin if you're truly saved because all that power is available to us to push the rubble out of the way. He who has begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until it's complete in the day of Christ. And his exaltation is, is the living proof that he can do it. That ought to bring us, that ought to give us security. That my salvation is assured because of Christ. Now, there should be a, a personal response to each one of us who understands Christ's authority, that, that if, he's, if he is the authority above all powers and names, that includes my name. So I don't get to call the shots in my life. I have to say, Lord, your will be done. And submitting to Christ first and exhibiting the, the surrender to the Holy Spirit's promptings is actually what chapter 5, verse 21 is going to tell us. That a person who's controlled by the Holy Spirit there's a heart of submission, of hum humility. No, is, is that the characteristic in our life of, of humility? Would your spouse say that it is? And if I asked your wife or your co-workers or, or for our young people, if I asked your parents or maybe your teacher, are you a person who's teachable? See, Christ's intention for us as his bride is that we would grow in Christ-likeness and that he would sanctify us. And that's, that's really what we're seeing then, that his intention as his bride is to sanctify and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word, that we would be holy and without blemish. That's what we saw at the beginning of this chapter back in verse 4. That God chose us before the world was created, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And in that relationship, verse 6 tells us we're accepted in the beloved. Not because of me, but because of Christ. So we need to give God's word active control in our decisions that it would transform our attitudes and realize there's no sin that you can't overcome, no trial too great that God's power cannot sustain. He can push it out of the way. 
It's not just a bulldozer in heaven that's sitting there that we get to see when we get there. It's available to us today. And the third thing that we see is Christ's exalted authority elevates our service in the church. The church is the preeminent institution in God's plan for today. But sadly, a lot of people don't think that way. When, when we invest our time and money and our energy to advance the cause of Christ, to assist in the work of Christ, that is a good thing. And we're glorifying the head. It was a blessing today. I saw a lot of people out here working on the landscaping around the church, investing so that the facility would be a good testimony for the body that meets inside and of our Lord. That, that's investing for eternity. You know, we have a lot of people in our world, they expend all their energy, their money, their talents, their energies to get stuff. Build bigger homes, drive nicer cars, and they fail to lay up treasures in heaven. And the Bible refers to those as biblical fools. Luke 12, 20, Jesus told of a man who kept expanding his personal wealth, his property, and had no thought for eternity. And the Lord said, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? You've worked for all of this and you're going to leave it behind. But you and I have the privilege of serving the exalted Christ. You know, I, I love to be part of what God's doing here at Tri-City Baptist Church. It's Christ's church, but it, it's a joy to be able to be part of it and that we can serve together. And, and recognizing that, that, that Jesus said to his disciples, all power is given to me, and now I authorize you to go. Make disciples of all nations. So is Christ the authority in our lives? Is his power on display in your life? Say, well, I'm struggling. Then make this your prayer. That understanding that this power is available. Now, I, I don't. The greatest power shortage today is not the oil crisis, the high prices at the gas pump, what the situation in the Ukraine is going to do. Greatest lack of power is in our personal spiritual life when we won't tap into what God has made available through Christ. Don't let God's power sit in some heavenly storage unit because we don't avail ourselves. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Now, are, are we tired of our sin? Maybe you're here without Christ. Are you tired of your sin? Jesus said, come to me. All who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. What an amazing offer. And it's open to every one of us. And if you're here without Christ today, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. And the power to raise the dead is available to raise you from dead in sin to new life in Christ. And if we've been raised to new life, then let's walk in the power that's available. Because those who rejoice in God's powerful work of salvation should pray for spiritual growth in the lives of others, live under his exalted authority, and live by his power. Let's pray together.